Welcome to the latest edition of the Ulster Roundup. I am still your host, Jonathan Bradley, which means once again, Gareth Hanna is not with us. But to look back at another massive week for Irish rugby, I have been joined by Michael Sadler. Hello, Michael. Hello there. Hi, everybody. Good to be back. And the long-awaited return to the podcast for photographer extraordinaire, John Dixon. John, how are you doing today? Hey, Johnny. How are you? Not too bad. Well, thank you both for joining me today and a good one to be here for, obviously, because we are looking back at what has to go down as a historic victory for Ireland, just their third ever over the All Blacks, admittedly their third in five tries. Michael, what was the most impressive aspect of the win for you? Oh, there's so many aspects to it. Uh, It's hard to know where to begin, really. I mean, the, the, the pace that they were able to play at the the way that they strangled the All Blacks, and I think it was already the point was made, All Black, the All Blacks, they kept that foot on the throat. Yeah, they didn't take points that were always there, but it didn't it didn't matter. They were still going hard at it, and they kept that pace going throughout the whole game. And, and that was the thing that really impressed me. I thought probably like a lot of other people that, yes, they would have patches, but that they wouldn't... Um, they wouldn't dominate in this way. And also defensively too, when the pressure was on, they delivered there as well, uh, notably in the first half. And of course, James Lowe's probably now immortal tackle at the very end when, you know, it, it really looked as if New Zealand were going to break out. But, you know, in, in every regard, you would be impressed by that. In every facet and, 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 and phase of play, Ireland just outplayed them. And again, a point was made that the 29-20 scoreline doesn't really reflect their dominance. In, in years to come, people will look at that and go, oh, that, 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 that might have been a close game. But it really, it didn't feel like that, even though the scoreline was quite close and that the New Zealand might have stolen the end. It just didn't feel like that. So, you know, impressed on every level. It would be hard to, to say that you weren't impressed with the way that they, they delivered the game plan in all its facets. And John, you have said the uh, the best seed in the house uh, down on the touchline. In terms of special days in the Aviva Stadium, where do you think this uh, this ranks? Because obviously there've been there've been quite a number in recent years through the Joe Schmidt era and now into uh, into Andy Farrell's tenure. But for you, I mean, how do you rank that performance of ones that you've seen in the Aviva? I, I would rank that as the best I've ever seen Ireland play. For a full 80 minutes, they were excellent. And that was my big worry. They would play for, say, 60 minutes, and then they would they would just fade in that uh, in the last uh, few minutes, and then that let the All Blacks in. We've all been there before with them. Uh, the time whenever uh, Ryan Crotty scored that try in the last minute, and then Cruden kicked the, the touchline penalty, or the conversion to win the game, was uh, a real punch in the guts for Irish fans a number of years ago when we, when we thought uh, we had the All Blacks beaten. And you never, you can never say that against the All Blacks. Uh, and then when we did eventually beat them at, at the Aviva Stadium a, a couple of years ago, that probably for me was a better feeling, feeling them at home for the first time than last Saturday. But still last Saturday was very special for two reasons. It was a full house and boy, the atmosphere was something else. Mm-hmm. And the noise was something else and the excitement, it was really, really good. And the performance was really good. So, uh, you know, I've probably made it at number two, number one being the first time we beat the All Blacks. But what really impressed me wasn't so much the game, boys. It was actually the All Blacks' attitude after the game when they did a lap of honour around the pitch. 
such a great classy sportsmen. They had a smile on their face. They waved to the crowd. They acknowledged the great occasion that uh, the match had been. It was a test match. It was a special test match. And I was so impressed with how the All Blacks handled their defeat. And it says a lot about them as a, as a, as a sporting nation to be able to do that after such an intense battle. It's going to be really interesting to see, I think, how they uh, bounce back or maybe don't bounce back at the weekend playing, uh, playing France and that sort of preview of the, uh, of the big World Cup pool game to come. But um, Michael, John has said there that um, he thinks it was the best Ireland performance that he's seen. I would definitely agree with him. You touched on the idea that <laughs> while it was 29-20, it actually could have been a lot more. And I think if Ireland had have let New Zealand back in late on. You saw that David Havili breakout with um, the James Lowe tackle and the Peter O'Mahony turnover. If that had gone another way, Ireland would have been kicking themselves in a in a Ryan Crotty-style fashion, I suppose. But to focus on just how good that performance was, we have a sort of two-part question from Ken Adams. Is this a flash in the pan or is this a new normal? And can Ireland play with that intensity in every game because I think if you look at these two games in isolation, the Japan and the New Zealand game, you would say that Ireland have really hit upon something. The games last summer were played with an entirely different team, really. And the Six Nations, they beat Italy, who they should always have beaten. Scotland game could have gone either way. And then they beat England largely off the basis of a dominant scrum. So this is something entirely different, really, that we've seen in an attacking sense. Is this what we expect to see from Ireland from this point on? Because it's like the last two weeks have essentially been entirely in Congress with the past two years. Yeah, I know that that's that's a very interesting question. You could only work on the assumption that it probably is that Farrell, Mike Cap, Paul O'Connell, all, all, Sam Neesbury, all the boys involved have identified a way they want to play the game. Now, I'm not saying that that's how we'll always see them do it necessarily. They will tweak it. I have no doubt about that. And there were tweaks even with that game plan on Saturday, which weren't the same as Japan. For instance, the number of offloads, someone like Japan was 16-17. They only did, they only credited with two offloads against the All Blacks. They were, you know, they were passing fair enough, but they weren't offloading in contact like that in the same way. So there were tweaks made to it. But I think that there's no reason to think that they haven't identified that this is the way that they're going to go forward with, with the game. This is the way that this is what they hope will, will, will still be in place and hopefully working in some way or other uh, for the World Cup. Mind you, it's a long way out, to, you know, to be talking about that. We're about two years. But I think there's no doubt that Andy Farrell has laid out some, at, at last, some, some plan, some structure to take forward and something also to get excited about. It's a great way of marketing the game now that they're trying to get crowds back as well. Let's play entertaining rugby. We're going to do it. And no better timing for it. I, I think it is the way that they're going to go forward. I don't see any reason why they would roll back. We wondered even last week, would they do that because they were playing the All Blacks after, you know, the all singing, all dancing, bell ringing sort of display we saw against Japan. But they, though they didn't, from the get-go, they went all out attack. Um, sorry, but when I say about the offloads, what I mean, they're not they're not throwing crazy passes, you know, out of contact here. It was all mostly very structured and not necessarily played off the cuff and was all very well drilled and delivered. I don't see why they, they, they won't continue with that game plan. I I, I, I can't see with, with, with tweaks, obviously, going forward, whether it's still going to be relevant or not. 
as we get closer to the World Cup, whether people work them out, I don't know. But you've got to try something, haven't you? And what we were seeing before, we we, we reckon probably really wasn't going to, to help Ireland greatly. And there was, a, you know, there was quite a lot of pessimism around that post-Joe Schmidt, it wasn't going to get any better and things weren't going to change. Well, they sure as hell have now. And um, hopefully they'll continue to do that going forward. Well, you mentioned the offloads, Michael, and I think both of them were from uh, from James Lowe, yeah. I believe. And mm-hmm. when you're looking at what's changed for this Ireland team since the summer, since the last Six Nations, the prevalence of James Lowe is a big is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Like I will admit, I was fairly skeptical that he was going to be able to defend well enough to play at a Test standard. When you saw how he first came into the team, he has been dropped and come back into the team in his year in Test Rugby. But, John, what have you made of how he's played the past two weeks? Because, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't have had him as a nailed-on starter coming into this no. window, but he's ending this window as the man in possession of Ireland's number 11 jersey, really, isn't he? Yeah, it's a really a really interesting question by Ken Adams, actually. The, the whole concept of what Ireland are trying to do in this autumn series is that they're treating it really like a quarter-final, semi-final, final of a World Cup. So each game that they're approaching, is, uh, they're taking it on that basis and they're trying to obviously achieve some sort of continuity between each game. And it's a building thing between each game. So people looked at that team that played against Japan and thought that's a fairly strong team they're putting out against Japan. That was a quarterfinal game. So that's why they wanted to win it. And then the All Blacks was next and now Argentina on Sunday. So it's an interesting thing that they're trying to do and I think that the Irish, what worries me about Ireland slightly is they, they work in peaks and troughs. And if we look what happened in that last cycle between before the, the, the 2019 Rugby World Cup, we beat the All Blacks and we won the Grand Slam. And then we went on a, on a dip just before the World Cup. So we're building for 2023 now. We need to sustain this victory, we need to take it into the Six Nations. We need to win the Grand Slam, not just win the Six Nations, but win the Grand Slam, keep building that momentum of a winning side, win the Grand Slam, and then take that into the Autumn Series, what have you, and then start building for 2023. We can't take the foot off the pedal, so to speak, in, 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 the, uh, in any of these build-up for test matches. If they aren't under serious about a, a World Cup campaign in 2023, they have to hit the standards every time. So I don't think you'll see as many changes in the Ireland setup. I think that Andy Farrell will run with a strong side whenever they go out to play any team. And I think that's what the All Blacks do. They, they pick their strongest possible team they can um, for nearly every big test match. They don't want to mess about, and they'll go out with their strongest All Black side. And that's how they mm-hmm. win so many games. I think when Ireland don't mess about with the team too much, and they, they, they build a strong side, and... To come back to your point, Johnny, I think you're right. I think that uh, Lowe has now nailed that number 11 jersey down and his performance on Saturday was outstanding. Um, great finish, great tackle, great energy all around the field. Um, when he was making tackles, when he was clearing out, everything he was doing, he was getting excited about, maybe too excited at times, but it's good to see. And that sort of <laughs> is infectious within the side. Yeah, obviously, from an Ulster perspective, it'll be interesting to see... Uh... Jacob Stockdale, whenever he comes back to fitness after uh, after injury, what he can do to sort of try and win that jersey back. But we've we've mentioned the World Cup there. It is a question that Niall McDonald has uh, has thrown in on Twitter here. 
not wanting to sound pessimistic after an amazing win, but why should we believe this is different than previous big wins and form before a World Cup prior to our usual World Cup performance? Michael, this is sort of the key, isn't it? Because we have seen Ireland be masters of this mid-cycle period and then go into the World Cup. We've talked about it at length in previous podcasts that no matter how they perform at the World Cup, they've got probably their if not their hardest, then one of the hardest prospects that they've ever had in the quarterfinals because they're either playing France or New Zealand. What do you think, or it, do you think that you've seen anything that's going to make this different than past attempts at peaking in time for the World Cup rather than peaking before the World Cup? Well, that, that, that's a very, very difficult question to, to, to answer. Um, we're a long, long way out, and there's an awful lot quite a lot, an awful lot of rugby that's going to be played before then. The one thing I would say is uh, it was something that was pointed out before the Japan game. It's kind of got a little bit forgotten now. You look at the number of Leinster players that he picked in his first team and the idea that that continuity could jump, ideally from province to test team. I think there might be something in that. There might be something in that which will help in making them more cohesive and more consistent. I also think another link between himself and Stuart Lancaster through from England, they work together and presumably work well, is, is perhaps also another level of it, which we haven't necessarily identified. I'm not lessening the impact of the other provinces, but I'm saying if you want to try and maintain that, you're, you're, you're taking players from the best, the best Irish province and one of the best operating teams in European rugby. You're bringing them into the test environment. It doesn't always work, but if, as you know, as we all know, that test coaches don't get a great deal of time with players. If there's some semblance of continuity there with players who know each other absolutely inside out, that perhaps will help on a training field to take it up a notch or two and may also be the key, which isn't, doesn't sound good maybe for the other provincial players, may also be the key into maintaining this going forward if you're able to take that very large core of Leinster players and keep you know, selecting them on that basis. I'm not saying that is what they're going to do. Um, I wouldn't expect Andy Farrell would, you know, just pin his colours to the mast in that way. But there might be something in that in terms of what we've seen in the sheer level of performance that those guys have brought with them. Oh, yeah, better than they produce at Leinster, obviously. Better and more intense and perhaps more accurate and at even perhaps greater pace. But nevertheless... I, I don't know. I'm thinking that there might be something in that, that they just all know each other so, so, so well. And there isn't that sort of betting in period that has to be done. That, that That's just my take on it. As for whether they can really avoid the trough, I don't think any team can can do that at all. Even the All Blacks have their problems as well. And everyone has them as, as you go along. But in terms of where we are at the moment, you'd have to say that if they can in some way distill that going forward then there must be a really good chance that Ireland will continue to play and operate at a high level not win every game they won't nobody can probably guarantee that but then they will be able to turn that on and will be able to develop that game going forward or at least let's hope I hope I'm right anyway I suppose this will all be played back to me at some point to be able to say you know what you were totally and 100% wrong just as we had a discussion about James Lowe the other week and went Nah, nah, he's not coming back. <laughs> wow, well, I did acknowledge that I was a James Lowe skeptic, so I, I so I owned up to that one. But um, there is well, I hold my hand up there. too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there is the age profile and the caps profile of the squad because this isn't a squad built to get to the World Cup. It should be a squad built to get 
beyond the World Cup? Well, John, Michael has uh, sort of already given his take on Big Jim's question, so I'll throw this one to you. Is Ireland just better off playing the Leinster team as it seems to have added the cohesion they have lacked over the past few seasons? I hate to say this, but probably yes. <laughs> um, you know, what was interesting on, on, on the Saturday was the bench, the experience that came off the bench in that last 15 minutes when it was really, really crucial that Ireland uh, did not lie down. Um, they had Conor Murray, Tag Byrne, Peter O'Mahony and Keith Earls to come off the bench. That's that's incredible when you think about it. Um, the, the, the starting team had done all the hard work and then you're, you've got guys of this calibre coming off the bench and not to mention, not to forget uh, Rob Herring, add that in there too, um, coming off the bench in that period. It's important to have that strength and depth and all those caps sitting on the bench to come on. But um, to answer your question about the length, when it's, you know, it's really a wee bit embarrassing for the rest of the provinces, but like the strength and depth that Leinster have um, is just amazing. What else can you say? I <laughs> know, like all those guys that you mentioned, with the exception of Rob Herring, are, uh, are monster players. So I guess in terms of, because Jim mentions the cohesion there, having those units that are so used to playing together, whether it be the monster guys coming off the bench, whether it be the all Leinster back row, which played brilliantly, whether it be Hugo Keenan and James Lowe defending together in the way that they do for um, for Leinster and maybe, I suppose without being too critical, hiding a few of James Lowe's defensive deficiencies in terms of coverage of the backfield because Keenan's so used to playing with him. Michael, like how important you, I'm sorry, obviously the biggest one, the biggest departure mm. this autumn, which is probably Jameson Gibson Park, mm. playing with Johnny Saxon rather than uh, Connor Murray. Now, you're not going to say that Connor Murray and Johnny Saxon don't have cohesion, given that no test international halfbacks have ever played together more. But like, how important do you think this familiarity is that the team has from, a, from the provincial level? Well, as I said before, yeah. I mean, the example you gave, Gibson Park and Sexton wouldn't play very much together because Johnny rarely ever plays for Leinster. But um, uh, I think Gibson Park, you know, has played a, a role in, in, in this performance. I'm not saying it's been downplayed, far from it. But I think it's far, far more critical than we probably give him credit for. Um, we weren't, I don't think we were sure before that he really could play like that. And what I mean by that is the sheer tempo and ability to keep the game moving. Obviously, a very quick ball and then a very quick pass or a very quick decision. The idea that you just hoof it up in the air or whatever, that's not necessarily what's going on or that he has to necessarily hit Johnny Sexton. But the point is he's getting that ball away so quickly and he's been he's able to see things quickly as well because presumably the ball is arriving fast. The defending team are on the back foot. And, and, and his role, I think, in making what we saw happen in, in certainly attack is absolutely been absolutely, well, I wouldn't say revelatory, but has been one of the big takeaways. I think we can, we, we, we have from the two autumn tests we've seen so far. Um, the other point I would make as well, you were talking about units. We haven't seen Robbie Henshaw yet. We may or may not see him against Argentina, but you have him. He's in with ring rows. There's another Leinster unit kind of waiting to be brought back in. Now, Johnny Sexton's going to be out for a while, which is no great surprise. So we, you know, I think it's six, six to eight weeks or whatever. But you know, I think it's very, very hard to ignore all that 
you know, uh, when you when you step back and look at what they've been able to do, what they've produced, and then bringing on their own sort of version of a bomb squad from Munster, if you like, on the bench, except not all forwards, obviously. But I think it it, it looks like it's a it's a very important factor in what we're seeing. And you're right about the age profile. Of course, you've got people like Sexton, Johnny Sexton. How is he going to be at the World Cup? Could he be? Surely not. And that is an issue that obviously will, will, will have to be addressed. But, you know, people like Andrew Porter, you know, people like Ty Furlong, we've had Ronan Kelleher coming through. It, it Yeah, you know, it, it's hard to get away from that. And obviously we'll be disappointed from an Ulster point of view if Ulster players can't break into that or at least get more of them in the 23. But, you know, if Ireland are winning and playing that well, it's hard to argue against what Andy Farrell's doing. I suppose the thing working in Ulster's favour from Ian Anderson's perspective anyway is that Ryan Barrett hasn't actually played that much for Leinster with James uh, James Ryan and that back row trio anyway. Um, so there maybe isn't that same familiarity there. It could be different if we see um, that pack come together in the big European games because then you could be looking at an all-Leinster pack, an all-Leinster halfback pairing. <laughs> possibly even, you mentioned Robbie Henshaw, possibly an all-Leinster center pairing and then really just another winger coming into the team to go with <laughs> Keenan and uh Lowe. Yeah. There'll be a lot a lot of pressure on Andrew Conway or Robert Balakin to or Keith Earls to make that uh to make yeah. that back three. So it's just not an all Leinster fifteen. But um Johnny Saxon out um for this weekend as you mentioned Michael Jameson Gibson Park out as well. Luke McGrath has been called up. James Ryan will captain the side on Saturday. Or Sunday, sorry. Presumably, we'll see uh, Joey Carberry play ten. Presumably, we'll see Connor Murray and Craig Casey divvy up the minutes at nine. But JW has asked, "What's your predicted lineup to face the Pumas? How many of the Ulster players will be in that starting fifteen? Because, I mean, I guess this really is the chance for the Ulster players to lay down a marker, as it were, and say, as well as the." now presumed starting 15 has played over the past two weeks. They're not going to want to be left behind in all this. They're going to want to stake a claim to be involved when the Six Nations comes around in, uh, in a couple of months. Because, you know, we haven't seen Balakin, we haven't seen Hume, we haven't seen Timoney, we haven't seen O'Toole. Do we think we're going to see any of these guys on, uh, on Sunday afternoon? John, you already mentioned that you don't think there'll be as many changes as people think. Well, I'd be surprised um, if, if they're trying to go quarterfinal, semi-final, final attitude. Um, you want to go out with your strongest team every time. So if, if I know there's a number of players who have picked up injuries and things after the weekend, which is understandable. The, the players, I think, could seriously, from an Ulster point of view, um, who are really in the ballpark would be Stuart McCluskey. Handy again in the second row and um, Rob Herring are the only three, I think, that probably will get if, if that's what they're doing who, who could actually put their put their hand up and say yeah they, they have a chance of making that t- starting team in my view I don't think uh, any of the rest of them have uh, are that close to it if that is what Ireland's approach is going to be they're going to go out and win win and win based on quarterfinal semi-final final attitude yeah I mean Michael obviously Robbie Henshaw coming back in do we think we could see that uh Robbie Henshaw 13, Sherman McCluskey at 12. It would be a, certainly a big opportunity for him to play with uh, Robbie Henshaw because we've seen ne- nearly every cap he's played for Ireland has been somebody different. So, 
Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I would also add that um, if Andy Farrell doesn't sort of mix it up a bit, uh, the danger that he faces, which I'm sure you'll be only too well aware of, is the players will become disillusioned if they get the impression that, you know, you need to play for Leinster if you play for Ireland. So he's going to have to do something about that. Um, this is an opportunity for him to do that ahead of the Six Nations when there'll be less scope to experiment, except perhaps, arguably, against Italy. No disrespect to them. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, Ian Henderson will definitely start. I think Rob Herring should start. I'm not sure about Stuart. I mean, uh, if Robbie Henshaw's fit, mm, yeah, yeah, he might. And if he's not fit, I don't see any reason why he wouldn't put a unit like McCluskey and Hume in and start them in midfield. I, I, I don't see why he wouldn't necessarily look at that as a possibility. As for... Uh, and there's Nick Timoney. I, I don't know. It's very difficult, isn't it? It's such a difficult area. Uh, the back row would have to change. And you would also think that Peter O'Mahony would get more game time. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's very hard to know. I think he ought to put, I think he ought to pick Robert Balakun and get another look at him. Um, I think that would be very unfair on, on Rob not, not, not to get a run out. But it's impossible to know what's going through Andy Farrell's mind, but I mean, the earlier point I made, you've got to also make this point that he just can't say to the guys, look, it's going to be 12 Leicester players every time. I mean, that, that's just not going to work in camp, is it? You have to offer some sort of reward system um, other than running opposition lines, holding tackle bags and going to meetings knowing that you're not involved. So this is an opportunity for him to look at that. I mean, he doesn't want to lose the game. And John's right. I mean, he is... You could argue that they're looking at upping it every time. This is a three-game situation that we're in here. Let's treat it like we're at the World Cup and go for it. But I do think that you fall into the trap then of asking either players to do too much from, say, the one province or disillusioning the others. I think it's a great opportunity for him to, to look at some of these guys. But I, I would say we're looking at what Rob Herring, Ian Henderson... And one of possibly Stuart McCluskey or James Hume, if Robbie Henshaw's fit and, and Robert Balakud. I don't know about Nick Timoney. Um, I think it would be maybe, maybe Bencham. I don't know. Something like that. You very much would like to think that these guys who've been in camp for some time will get something from the experience, other than the fact that they said they played in the summer. I, I'm much more hard nosed about that. I, I honestly, I honestly know. I think uh, an international cap has to be earned uh, and the only way you can earn an international cap is perform perform for your province first and you know when all the interpros are coming up shortly um, Ulster players have to go out and set down a marker um, if they're not getting an opportunity in the Ireland camp to do that this is when they can get the opportunity against opposition playing for the province uh, like the, the old days in the interpros you go out there and you stamp your authority on the game. And, you know, that's mm -hmm. what you have to do. It's interesting because you do wonder how different things would have been for the Ulster players had they put in a better performance against mm -hmm. uh, Connacht. Whenever you talk about the Interpros, like Ulster's, I suppose, big audition to be involved in this. That was their last game before coming into camp and they fell completely flat. Like Balakun to me is an interesting one because I would have expected him to get a run on the base. I just... If you had said to me last summer that he wouldn't have played a minute for Ireland in the autumn, if that's how it turns out, then I would have been surprised. But I suppose, like John says, they're going for the three wins. They're going to pick the team that they think can do that. Argentina are coming into this 
awful win having ended that long losing streak, admittedly not against the strongest of opposition, but regardless of the team that Andy Farrell selects, do we predict that this is just going to be a relatively straightforward win and a clean sweep of the uh, of the autumn series? Well, if if they if they play anything like they played against Japan and New Zealand, then the answer to that I would say would be would be yes. Whether they mix a bit, whether they don't mix a bit, is neither here nor there. You know, Andy Farrell will be looking for them to bring that to this Argentina game and 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 keep doing it and deliver it yet again, um, and then leave camp and um, you know reconvene ahead of the Six Nations on the back of three wins and three you know, overwhelmingly positive and um, dominant, if you like, performances, something to really take with you to the Six Nations. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I can't even remember what the question was. Now, what was the, what was the question? I can't... Just do you think Ireland are going to win? That was it, basically. Oh, well, that was as simple as that. Well, I'm very glad it was as simple as that. Yes, I do. I do think Ireland will win, even, as I say, if they do tweak things. Or as John, John makes a very good point. You know, he is right. that This is not a game... Where you go, look, ach, look, you've you, you know you've you've done your bit here. Here's another cap, um, and it, it is a very I think a very pertinent point that's being made that they, they kind of yeah they, they they blew their audition. They were so poor against Connacht that they went into that camp already. Probably, if Andy Farrell hadn't, hadn't already made up his mind what he was going to do, then it was going to be very hard for them to to make great inroads unless they absolutely nailed it at training, um, which is what they really need to do this week i just assumed for the the sake of squad harmony not that he would give it out cheaply but that he might look at rotating just even to get a look at people to see how they would cope uh in this situation but you wouldn't be at all surprised if he he really didn't take that approach um i i'm just sort of looking at it and thinking that hopefully you know there there might be an opportunity for some players not to get cheap caps here but to get exposure at this level to see what they what they can do which will be good not only for their confidence, but also good for the, the wider squad in terms of being able to expose them rather than having lots of guys sitting down there doing nothing. But if they don't do that, I'll not be the slightest bit surprised. They will They will beat the Pumas. I can't see how they would lose. I'm sure John and even yourself would probably agree with that. It's it's hard to see that from this uh, perspective. I think, I think this um, selection for this game on Sunday is going to be the most intriguing one for me because I'll show you what... Andy Farrell's mindset set is like what, where he's going, where he's what, what he's thinking for the future, what he's going to do in his tenure as Irish coach. So um, I agree. I think uh, Ireland will win this on Sunday if they can play anywhere near the level they played against Japan and against the All Blacks. So fingers crossed, three wins from three. And just to finish up, we will uh, turn our attention back to Ulster because they are coming back under the horizon. We'll be. Uh preparing for a trip to the RDS in just over a week's time now. So um, the weekly journal comes in with um, an interesting question. How much revisionism do you expect when the Irish teams come to play in Europe? Coming into this international window, no European games played had sparked fears that Ireland were going to be undercooked. Now the narrative is that Ireland were fresh and the All Blacks were fatigued. If Ireland can get that sort of performance together in three weeks without being battle-hardened. How do we set our expectations for Ulster moving forwards? Do we just wait to see the result and then change the narrative accordingly? That sounds like uh, 
He's hmm. just summed up my journalism in one tweet there, but um, and mine, yes. <laughs> but uh, but ignoring that, how do we think it will affect Ulster if they come back in having not played an awful lot of uh, rugby over the autumn internationals? They had good squad <laughs> representation there, but if they're coming back in straight into that Leinster game, which is a big one, obviously in terms of the table aside from everything else, then Ospreys and then into the two European games. And we saw last year how quickly Europe can get away with away from you in this new structure of only having four games. Well I think I think it's a good thing for Ulster to have Leinster and Ospreys. Ospreys are going well. So two tough games before Europe. I think it's a very, very important two games coming up. And I think that uh, it's, it's, it couldn't be better preparation for them. Michael, would you would you go along with that? You think that just the presence of being Leinster and an Ospreys team that is uh, that is tracking well is enough rugby for a team that hasn't played together in three weeks now and won't play together for another week and a half? Yeah, well, look, it's certainly hitting the ground running, isn't it, in comparison with some of the sides they played up to now. So we're going to find out quite a lot about them. I think that the nature of that defeat against Connacht will have rattled them. There's no doubt about it. They were very, very poor. Um, and they haven't necessarily been playing great up to that point, but to get ambushed and taken taken up, you know, part the way they were is is actually very worrying, I, I would have thought. But these games, um, you're going to find out now before you hit Europe really what sort of shape they're going to be in. Leinster at the RDS doesn't get much worse than that, really, does it? The Ospreys, away the way they're going, another massive test. And then you're straight into um, Clermont away. It, it it is um oh I, I I'm not I'm not terribly confident having seen the way they signed up against Connacht and indeed the way they were playing prior to that. I would that that's gonna take some fix. And as I think Dan McFarlane mentioned, possibly and you know that that's not how you want to sign off for a break. Uh definitely, definitely not. But it will have uh, sent out warning signals and alarm bells will be ringing that there is they, they, they simply have to pull themselves together and fix a number of things and come back. And they need they need to put in performances here. Um, they need results too, really, I suppose. Uh, Lancer, the RDS, maybe you could let go, but you know they, they, they'd want they'd to win at the Ospreys if they can. And then, as you say, you're into Europe. And if you start badly there, you're in trouble, from big trouble from the off. And they'll only come out of Europe then, but I think with the, um, is it the Boxing Day game at the Kingspan, which, believe it or not, is against Connacht again. Yippee! So these games, Leinster away, Ospreys away, Claremont away, three away games, doesn't get much more difficult than that. I think it's Northampton at home, and then you're into that Christmas fixture with Connacht. There, and, oh, and then I think after that, the first game of the New Year's Leinster, albeit at the Kingspan. There's a lot of opportunity there to lose games and lose momentum. There's no doubt about that. This, I think, will be the ultimate test of Ulster season. They come through this in reasonable shape. And then, you know, they might be able to, to, to do decent things in the new year. If they don't, like let's say they go, it's not inconceivable, four straight defeats before they get, they get Connacht at, at, um, at the Kingspan on Boxing Day. Uh, that's a completely different complexion. I think it is, it's very much in the balance. I'm not sure I've seen enough to convince me that they're going to come out of that um, group of games in, in great shape, unfortunately. Let's take the positive on, on, on the, this Leinster game, boys. Tongue in cheek, Leinster will have most of the Irish. Their Irish players now have to be rested yeah. um, following the uh, the autumn series, so they'll not be at their strongest. 
So Ulster last week had an A game against Leinster A and uh, they worked very hard all week preparing the, the A team um, for that game and they went out at Rifle Park on Friday and they put a great performance in um, against a very strong uh, Leinster A team. Now, let, let's be positive and think that they can go to the RDS with a full Ulster package minus obviously our Irish internationals uh, or the boys in the Irish squad. And I think they can, you know, let's be positive, go down there and get the win. Why not? I mean, you say tongue-in-cheek, John, but that, like, that is a good point. I mean, Michael, we're talking about the Ireland team for Sunday. Yeah. Ulster play Leinster <coughs> in Dublin six days after that. You yeah, know, from yeah. the Ulster perspective, I was saying, you know, you might want the guys coming back in with a bit of momentum from uh, <laughs> international camp. There's a very real possibility that the fewer Ulster players that are involved against Argentina means the more Irish internationals Ulster will have to go down to the RDS. When, as John points out, Leinster won't have their, essentially, their first-choice <coughs> team because their first-choice team has near no. enough become Ireland's first-choice team. No, that's right, but their second-choice team is pretty good too. Um, I would say that, you know, the RDS who do, it's got to be, it's got to end sometime. And, you know, we all thought Ireland would never beat New Zealand, didn't we? And look what happened. So, you know, I suppose if you if you step back and look at it in that perspective, considering they, they ought to be as close to full strength as possible, they have a chance. It's just that I've seen them so many times there, even, you know, even against Leinster teams that aren't necessarily considered to be that strong and, and they just have a problem with it. They have a big problem there. Um, certainly, it, it is undoubtedly an opportunity for them to put down a marker about this and particularly after coming back after such a dismal display against Connacht. And with so many Leinster players presumably not visible, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying that you know they're going to fall flat in their faces. I'm just saying that this is probably one of the most difficult assignments you would have, no matter what sort of team you have, simply because of how difficult it's been, regulation season or otherwise, to win there. But if, if, if very few of them do get game time against Argentina, they'll be absolutely champing at the bit. So Ulster will go down with something close to to their best team, mm -hmm. which um, they'd need to do anyway. Um, but certainly, what all I'm all I'm really saying is, if they don't get off on the right foot, there, they're they're really under the cosh going forward with the Ospreys away and Claremont away, and then Northampton Saints and Connacht on Boxing Day. Uh, I'm not saying they can't do it. Why not? You know, they're gonna, it's going to have to happen sometime, isn't it? It is. It's yeah. After that run of fixtures you mentioned, they have Leinster at home, Munster away, Northampton away, and Claremont. At home, so uh, it doesn't get any easier after that no, either. Really, but, um, John, you mentioned it there. Obviously, the A game on um, on Friday afternoon. Their fans obviously always keen to hear how their player, how the younger players and the fringe players have got on. Could I just ask you who impressed you during that performance? I think the standout player on the day was Angus Curtis, playing in the centre. Um, very impressed with him. Carried the ball in two hands, created a lot of uh, bother for the, uh, the Leinster midfield. And like, the, the, Leinster, the Leinster team was well stacked. They, 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 they had a great player. Uh, Nick McCarthy was at scrum half. And Lewis Finley was up against him, and he went well. Now, Ulster had Ian Madigan at 10, who I thought controlled the game extremely well. Um, was used as uh, all his experience to keep the Ulster pack, uh, the ball in front of the Ulster pack as much as possible. And um, up front, uh, I was impressed with Marcus Ray again. Uh, Ruben Crothers had a great game. Harry Sher Sheridan, again, from in the second row, along with David O'Connor, very, very good. And at hooker, John Andrew went well in the first half, and then he was the captain on the day, and he 
swapped over the captaincy with Tom Stewart, who came off the bench, and Tom Stewart certainly made his presence felt when he got on the pitch. So there are a lot of good positives from an Ulster point of view, and the fact it was five all at half time, and uh, Ulster were, uh, then took the lead eight five with an Ian Madigan penalty. I honestly, these these games are I would have kicked for the corner and back the Ulster line out uh, to get to catch and drive and go for that. Um, but they went for the penalty, took the lead eight eight five, and then uh, Leinster, as they always do, bounced back and they scored a, a converted try just to hold on for the victory. But at the end, Ulster were on top and Ulster were were playing all the rugby. They were deep in the in, in the Leinster twenty two and pressurising. It was a eighty minute performance from the team. So I was impressed uh, with how well they did. And that's why I'm saying to you, I'm not, un, un, I'm not unduly worried about going to the RDS for this game if, if some of these Ulster players are going to be playing against these boys from, from the Leinster A team. We certainly put our, put our hands up on, at the, on Friday and I have no doubt if they can go down there. And with the motivation that we need to beat these boys and need to, need to get a win and need to get momentum built for going into Europe in, in early December, um, it's crucial that we get back on the winning ways again, you know? Absolutely. Well, obviously, we will be looking ahead to that game in more depth next week as well as looking back to the Argentina game. Hopefully, I know I've promised you this in weeks past, hopefully Gareth Hanna will be back to join us next week. But for this week, I've been Jonathan Bradley from myself, from Michael and from John. Thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you next week. Thank you.